The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Sound On. Washington is girding, just like the financial markets, for today's meeting at the White House. The second round for President Biden, Speaker McCarthy, the rest of the congressional leadership and the staffers. I see Kamala Harris is in this meeting as well, based on the guidance. All as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sounds the alarm again. That is her job here on a daily basis. Spoke earlier today at the Independent Bankers of America Summit here in Washington. The U.S. economy hangs in the balance. The livelihood, livelihoods of millions of Americans do too. So there's no time to waste. Congress should address the debt limit as soon as possible. There's clearly no time to waste, but if you've been paying attention... You do know that both sides have started identifying elements of a possible deal. Now, look, this whole thing could blow up still, but there is at least a punch list. Claw back unspent COVID funding from the states, set the budget caps. There's a whole bunch to talk about there. Address permitting reform and increase work requirements for food stamps and other social programs. Something Speaker McCarthy talked about with reporters last evening. What work requirements actually do help people get a job. Every, every data point shows that, and it helps people move forward. So the public wants it. Both parties want it. The idea that they want to put us into a default because they will not work with on that is ludicrous to me. And you're talking about SNAP? What, are you, are you, what program are you talking about specifically? Look, we're talking about all the programs. All the programs. Indeed, progressives do not like this idea. And the president has drawn a line at Medicare. We'll see if that's clarified at all in this meeting this evening. So how urgent is this session today? And must there be a deal before the president flies to Japan tomorrow? That's where we begin with Max Baucus, former Democratic senator, former ambassador to China who chaired the Senate Finance Committee and survived a few of these debt ceiling battles. Mr. Ambassador, welcome back. How would you frame this session today? How important is it for them to find a framework before the president leaves the country? I think it's critical. And I do think they probably will reach a deal before the president does leave. It's critical because um, the president really, in a certain sense, can't leave until a deal's done. And mm. if the longer this plays out, the U.S. Is not, can't get its act together, the more we have egg on our face worldwide with Japan and G7 and other countries. You know, basically, uh, this happens frequently. It's a game of chicken. And usually, um, both sides blink near the end. Uh, this time, it's a little different. Um, the country is more, much more polarized. McCarthy got his uh, budget passed the House by only two-vote margin. Um, add to that, a president, uh, former President Trump 
is going to urge and, and egged on the House Republicans to, to hold fast. And so it's even though it's these games at chicken tend to play out well at the last minute, yeah. it's a little more dicey at this point. It just sure feels dicey, and the the markets agree with you, uh, Ambassador. I wonder your thoughts on the items uh, that we're hearing about here. Seems like bringing back, clawing back COVID funding is kind of a no-brainer. Everyone's on the same page. Setting budget caps is where the real fight is going to be. Uh, and maybe work requirements are too. You know what it's like to, to, to try to straddle both sides here. And the president has some very conserved, uh, concerned progressives in his caucus, in his party, uh, about what this might mean uh, for food stamps and other programs. Are you worried about that? Um, I, I bet, yes. I'm, you're right about COVID. That's basically a no-brainer budget caps so you know they, i think they'll find a way to deal with that even though the debt limit camps are a bit acronistic in, uh, in this modern times i think work requirements can be more difficult uh, uh, but i think both sides have to remember that that a compromise is very much in the, not only the country's best interest but add to that people tend to forget you know, the, the united states is going to still survive <laughs> if there's a compromise Members of the House, the Senate, Republicans and Democrats say they sure they're fighting hard and so forth, but and it's hard to compromise. But once the compromise is reached and the, and the, the air is out of the balloon, everything's back to normal again, and, and tomorrow's another day. So I do think they'll compromise. You were, of course, our ambassador to China, and you know how important these foreign trips are uh, for the commander in chief. It's a G7 we're talking about. He's flying off uh, to Hiroshima, at least scheduled to tomorrow. They're having questions about whether he should go, Ambassador. Here's what the Speaker said about this last night. The President is the President of the United States. He can make that decision one way or another. But all I know is we've got 16 more days to go. I don't think I'd spend eight days somewhere out of the country. I, I think the country wants an American president focused on solving American problems. That's exactly what the House is doing. Of course, the Speaker is going to say that, uh, Ambassador. What do you think about this trip? Would it be a bold statement? Uh, in, a, in a good way for the president to stay right here till it's hammered out? Or does that create a new sense of urgency and maybe concern on the other side of the world? Well, frankly, uh, uh, it's it's high stakes. I think that um, they should do whatever is necessary to reach a deal to compromise so that the president can go, uh, because that will certainly enhance America's prestige in the world. We must remember that uh, we are very interrelated, certainly economically, around the world. China, number one, but uh, Japan and other G7 countries as well. So I, I, if I were the president, I'd go the extra mile to find some way to get a deal so I could go over. In addition to that, though, I think that uh, House Republicans deep down know what's best for the United States, that is, is to reach a deal. They don't, do not want to be the ones that are portrayed as the spoilers. This is more dicey to summarize, but I, I do think they'll reach a deal. That's really nice to hear, by the way, and our listeners should know that you have been through a couple of these. And by that, I mean 1998, 2008, 2011, the fiscal cliff. That was the big one that we like to compare uh, all of this to. 2011. That was the time. That was the fun time, Ambassador. So bring us back because I keep hearing this is not 2011. And I realize a lot of things are different here, including the polarization that you just pointed out. Is it more difficult this time to come to a deal? I think it is. It is because the country is more polarized. House Republicans are much more extreme. House Democrats are much more extreme. It's, it's very, very difficult. But, you know, presidents who run for office hire out to be leaders. And Biden's got to figure out a way to get this thing put together. And McCarthy has certain responsibilities as well. 
and don't remember, don't, and remember, 2011 was so ugly. You know, people laid off, employees laid off. It was just, it just it such a bad taste in people's mouths. Slight problem though is that 2011. That's about 12 years ago. Sometimes people have short memories. Good lord, forget how bad it was. 2011. But uh, the more they're reminded of that, the more I think they'll reach a deal. This is all happening, of course, against the backdrop of the Federal Reserve trying to beat inflation and a nation's capital trying to understand what happened with the banks that failed a couple of weeks back. There's another round of hearings, uh, Ambassador, including your old uh, committee, the Senate uh, uh, Financial Services uh, Finance Committee, I should say, is digging into this stuff. And we've got executives from SVB, the former bank, the former signature bank. We've got regulators like Michael Barr from the Fed. Uh, is this just one big theatrical exercise? Because lawmakers seem to not agree on any of the the remedies that have been put forth here to prevent another bank failure. We can't even get a budget written. What do you think? Well, I, I, it's clear. It's important to have the hearing. It's important to ask the questions. Ask the questions of the Silicon Valley Bank and, and the Republic Bank of, of officers and of the regulators, etc. Um, I, I think, frankly, the, the mistake made was. Um, the regulators just did not pay sufficient attention to the regional banks compared with the big banks. And second, in doing so, and Congress in doing so, did not really impose in the Fed significant uh, capital requirements on the regionals as they have on the, on the big banks. That, that, I, that I think will help out. Now, there's a big debate on whether deposits should be insured or not. Um, it's, it's a little dicey. It turns out Silicon Valley depositors came out okay after the Fed changed its mind and said insure all depositors. The bondholders and the investors did not come out okay, and that's a good result because they, they're the ones that should be holding the bag. So it's just, this is America. That is, we have hearings, we ask questions, and then it's up to the decision makers, Congress and the regulators to say, okay, now, now what's best? And I just hope that they just keep in mind which, what's best for the country and not get too wrapped around the axle on, on politics one way or the other mm-hmm. because Americans really care about you know, their livelihood and, and Congress doing what's right. They care much less about the, the politics. It's kind of amazing uh, the number of cross currents that we're talking about here. All of them bring a certain level of risk. And when you consider the banking crisis, when you consider the fight against inflation, predictions of a possible recession here, uh, we haven't even mentioned the geopolitical world that you specialized in, whether it's Ukraine, China, or Russia. Do all of these add up to create an even greater urgency for us to solve this debt ceiling issue. It, it, it feels more precarious than ever. Do you feel that way? I do. Um, it's, it's, it's critical because as Secretary Yellen has said, and others have said, <laughs> if it's not, my God, it's, it's chaos. It's, it's a catastrophe. Um, and, and the dollar will plummet. The statue of the U.S. will decline precipitously. There's no question. Because it, it, the, the consequences are so dire, mm. I, I think that's it added impetus to get this done. Lastly, uh, Ambassador, you've been to your share of uh, of G7s and dealt with many of the leaders the president will be talking to. Assuming he goes on this trip, what's he going to be hearing from his counterparts and other nations about this debt ceiling issue? Will they express that concern in person? Well, I think there's a, there's a big issue here, um, overriding issue. That is, it's deficit spending. It's not just the United States. But other um, major countries in the world, China, Europe, have been spending a lot of money. And our debt percent of GDP is rising significantly. I saw one estimate that it could be as high as 7% uh, 
um, by the end of this decade. Um, and it's in the U.S. It's the pandemic spending. It's um, you know, although the Inflation Reduction Act is supposed to reduce the deficit, it's actually going to increase the deficit. Out of that, chips, infrastructure, and, and, and so forth. And China's got to spend a lot of money uh, on its um on its, its housing industry. It's they're way over leveraged. So it's um the bigger overriding issue is is excessive spending, and I very much mm. expect and hope that, that that's going to be addressed significantly because governments have to begin to get their finances uh, under control. Otherwise, that could be the next big bubble that's going to cause <laughs> some kind of collapse here. It's the one thing we all seem to have in common in the industrialized world, I guess. Uh, ambassador, what a great conversation. I'm glad you could join me today. Max Baucus, the former ambassador to China, former senator from Montana who chaired the Senate Finance Committee as we get things rolling here on Bloomberg Sound On. We'll take a swing at the panel while we have some time here. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors, with us uh, to share some insights here, and namely the debt ceiling. I- I'd love to hear from you both as we get ready for this meeting. Uh, Jeannie, you know, we've talked about this. We talked about it yesterday. Now that we're actually here, and Speaker McCarthy threw down the markers that he did last night, and he's suggesting that the- no progress has been made. Is this actually the meeting where this is solved? I don't think so. <laughs> At least that is what we are hearing. And I agree with the ambassador. It is a critical point. It's a critical time. And I'm glad to hear he's optimistic this is going to get done. And I hope he is right. We keep hearing, you know, things look worse and the storm gets worse with Congress before they solve this. But the reality is there's very few people that we hear from who say they think out of the meeting today that there will be an agreement. Now, hopefully we're wrong, but these sides are so far apart, it's hard to imagine how they actually would come to an agreement that could be sold to their respective caucuses. Mm-hmm. What's your thought here walking into this meeting, uh, Rick? Will, will there be significant progress today? Yeah, I think by the rules of Capitol Hill negotiating with the administration, when you have a principals meeting, you have to show progress. Um, mm. And so the staff has been under enormous pressure to find some progress in the negotiations. And so even though uh, I think uh, the speaker has been using his bully pulpit to uh, push for a uh, uh, more draconian uh, proposal than I think the administration wants. Uh, I think you have to actually show progress today. And so, and I think the, the speaker knows that he has to come out of there with like a win in his hands. And I think mm-hmm. Biden understands that too. So uh, my guess is on a number of these mm-hmm. issues, they, they will find common ground and can talk about that at the end of the day. Uh, whether or not that's enough to make a final deal, uh, who knows? Because you do have this complication that uh, the speaker has to try to figure out how to get a vast majority of his caucus because the Democrats simply aren't going to walk the plank yeah. for a Republican speaker who can't deliver his own caucus. Rick makes a few good points there, Jeannie. Doesn't it behoove President Biden to help Kevin McCarthy get a win here so we can move the ball so he can actually say, hey, look, we're making progress? Yeah, it would behoove him, especially because he has to leave. But the reality is, you know, progress is different than an agreement. So agreement, I don't think so. Progress, we hope so. Absolutely. But the reality is, look at what the OMB put out just this morning. They say Republicans have to slash 30 percent to get Mm -hmm. the spending levels, spending cuts they want. That's almost impossible. Democrats know that. That's wind at their back. That's why they're sticking where they are. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The headline on the terminal says it all. Bank executives grilled as lawmakers pry into failures. Those would be the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. This, of course, the Senate Banking Committee. How'd you like to be Gregory Becker, the former CEO of SVB? I worked at a place I truly loved, alongside our dedicated employees to support our clients who were innovating in astonishing ways. I believe that SVB had a positive impact on the roughly 100,000 companies we supported over multiple decades. The takeover of SVB has been personally and professionally devastating. And I'm truly sorry for how this has impacted SVB's employees, our clients, and our shareholders. And that's how it started. He, of course, drawing much criticism for selling $3.5 million, $3.6 million in company stock under a trading plan less than two weeks before the firm disclosed its extensive losses ahead of the failure. He's also taken a lot of criticism for receiving a bonus, as we heard from Republican Senator J.D. Vance. What were the amounts of your cash bonuses in 2021? Do you recall? 2021, I believe, was $3 million. And your cash bonus in 2022 was? $1.5 million. So in 2022 in particular, you paid yourself a $1.5 million cash bonus, even as the stock the value of the company that you were managing declined by two-thirds. That's not bad work if you can get it. As uh, Senator Kramer and I were joking, uh, we would be willing to screw something up for much less than $1.5 million. Yeah, no comment there. It's not just Republicans beaten up. Far from. This is like the sweet spot for Elizabeth Warren. 
The senator from Massachusetts went after Mr. Becker repeatedly, yes, on the bonuses as well as the salary increases that he received in a very peculiar period of time. You cost the FDIC fund $20 billion. You made $400 million doing that. How much are you planning to return to the fund? Here we go. Senator, I disagree with the number you just quoted. But what? You don't, that's not your paycheck? Or it's not how much it costs the FDIC? Senator, Those are both a matter of public record. How much are you planning to return to the fund? Senator, the number you just quoted was $400 million. Uh, $40 million. Sorry. $40 million. I was million. disagreeing with that. <laughs> how much of the $40 million are you planning to return? How many times are we going to do this dance? Senator, I promise to cooperate with the regulators as they do. Are you planning to return a single nickel to what you cost the fund? Senator, I know there's going to be a process review of compensation. I'll take that as a no. Okay, then. How long are we going to do this dance? Three days of hearings this week. They start on the Senate, then they go to the House, they come back to the Senate. On the other side today, the House doing the hearings with the Fed, the banking regulators. They're swapping witnesses so everybody gets a piece. But does anything come of it? We reassemble our panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us watching along Bloomberg Politics contributors. What do you think about this, Jeannie? We're in a world where J.D. Vance, Elizabeth Warren, Ted Cruz and Sherrod Brown all get along. And that's not the beginning of a joke. No, it's not. We've even seen legislation introduced about clawing back executive pay for Warren, Hawley, Cortez Masto and Braun. So that's quite a pair or quite a a, a group. But, you know, I I have to say this was I couldn't keep my eyes off this hearing. And I don't say that about most hearings. The one in the (laughs) Senate was fascinating. I don't know if you caught Senator Kennedy, but the signature video that he played for Mm -hmm. Scott Shea and his questioning was amazing. And, you know, I have to say the same thing with Warren and and Menendez, um, but Kennedy, as usual, was uh, very colorful. (laughs) And the reality was, as you just played, they all said uh, to Elizabeth Warren and others that they weren't intending to pay back anything or give back anything. Mm -hmm. And I should say she also criticized Becker for lobbying Congress, which is another area that for loosening regulations, which is another area that I think needs to be explored. And to your point, there was an awful lot of bipartisan agreement on some of this. Um, So it was just a fascinating hearing that's going to continue in the House tomorrow. Does clawing back executive pay uh, see the light of day, Rick, or, or does nothing come from this? It's just a big week of grandstanding. Yeah, certainly it's a big week of grandstanding no matter what. Uh, whether or not anything actually passes Congress and gets signed into law uh, is, I think, pretty speculative. Uh, although I would say the number of Republicans who are attacking the compensation system is is surprising to me. I mean, the Republicans really had focused on the FDIC, the Fed, and the Comptroller's Office for failed oversight. And and that, that would be a traditional Republican response to this, and that generally leave the businesses to their own. Uh, they made bad decisions, and, 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 and they'll have to pay. The fact that they're all piling on uh this compensation issue and the clawback concept that is uniquely you know uh elizabeth warren's is is an indication that maybe they will get something done on this uh the outrage is pretty stiff on both sides well so but does that challenge uh the the conservative view here rick or is this kind of a a one-off because these failures were so predictable i guess in in retrospect 
well, it's excessive failure, right? I yeah. mean, like they were told repeatedly that they were, you know, uh, violating regulatory regimes and mm-hmm. and uh, bad business practices. And so they aren't really defensible in any way. But so it's yeah. not a shifting party view, though, I guess. You know, I, 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 I must admit there have been a shift in party view uh, within the Republican caucus in both the House and the Senate about whether or not you are the extension of the Chamber of Commerce in Washington. And we've seen a, a, a diversion of that. And certainly candidates like uh, Donald Trump and potential candidates like uh, Ron DeSantis are noticeably anti-corporate America. Yeah, and so, yeah, I do think you're seeing some of that play out in Congress for the first time, really, uh, as long as I can remember. That's a pretty crowded club already uh, for progressive Democrats, Jeannie. What does that mean for the Democratic view on this? Does everyone just get in the same boat? I think on this, um, you know, my read of this is we saw a lot of anger over CEO pay 15 years ago with the financial crash. And I think what has happened is over the last 15 years, that has solidified. And it's an anger, I think, as usual, congressional members, senators and representatives are reflecting what their constituents feel, which is that we are bailing out, regardless of what anybody wants to call it, we are bailing out these big banks while CEOs are going off with big payoffs and selling big time stock. And so they're echoing what their constituents are saying. So I, I think the shift has goes back to 2008 when we saw that. And I also, by the way, think we're going to see a closing or an attempt to close that loophole for the one for the 10B51 rule, because there's also questions of abuse there. And we saw the SEC talk about that in December. And I think we will maybe see some movement there, which obviously won't require congressional action like the clawback of executive pay would. But if there's one thing I can foresee coming this year, if anything mm-hmm. legislatively, it would be the clawback on pay. It's very popular. you going to have to cough up some money, it looks like here. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. 306 pages. Some serious reading from the U.S. Special Counsel. I'm Joe Matthew along with Kaylee Lyons, and I'm not talking about Jack Smith here. (laughs) John Durham. You might actually have to Google it to bring yourself. Just picture the mustache. (laughs) U.S. Special Counsel faulted the FBI and the Justice Department's probe into Russia, 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 Mm -hmm. whether Donald Trump's campaign conspired with Russia to interfere in not the 20 election, but way back in 2016. Uh, Longest serving ever special counsel, Kaylee, and he's leaving folks wanting a four year probe, six and a half million dollars. And no charges filed, huh? Nope. Just a conclusion that the Justice Department and the FBI failed to uphold their important mission of strict fidelity to the law in connection with certain events and activities that are described in this report. So basically pointing a finger at the investigators and the DOJ and saying, you you guys did mess up here. I guess it's a question, Joe, of how validating this is for former President Trump. That's right. Uh, Vindication is Mm -hmm. the way he sees it. Durham was tapped by uh, then Attorney General William Barr. And this we're talking about it because the report was submitted to current Attorney General Merrick Garland last week. And now it has been made public. Donald Trump responds on the Truth Social, writing, quote, wow, all caps, exclamation point. After extensive research, special counsel John Durham concludes the FBI never should have launched the Trump-Russia probe. In other words, the American public was scammed. 
That's, of course, what he was saying going into this. We have an opportunity to talk about it now uh, with Rachel Dean Wilson, Managing Director, Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Rachel, thanks for being with us. Should this report have ever been made? Was this a waste of money? You know, I, I won't say whether it should have ever been made or not, but I think it, like that that we're coming away from it um, with it, it, it's lacking, right? Um, it's Trump is heralding it as um, you know some kind of vindication, mm-hmm. but if you actually read the report, it reads more like an internal review document um, on mm-hmm. how the um, FBI should approach more politically sens- sensitive cases and where they fell down. Um, and that's valid, right? Like we should always, we should want all of our federal agencies to um, to really make sure that there are procedures and processes in place uh, that make sure that we don't have um, political bias or confirmation bias, you know, coming into investigations. Um, that being said, what I think is really damaging here mm. is just the constant back and forth, forth and politicization of the issue of foreign interference in elections. Mm -hmm. Um, We are now seven years out from um, Russian interference in the 2016 election, and it didn't stop on election day. Um, They're still trying to interfere in our democracy. Um, China and Iran are also um, kind of playing their own games on the influence and interference side uh, in the United States. And it really is damaging from a national security perspective that uh, the politics of this issue allows allows for dismissal on one side and a real lack of solutions and and focus um, looking at the elections ahead. So, in other words, you think this really undermines the credibility of these investigators as they look into some of these issues? Yeah, I mean, I, and in the report, Durham actually lauds the Mueller report and the Senate. Um, the bipartisan Senate investigation into Russian interference um, from the intelligence community. And and so there's really good information on this. Um, it's the political uses that are really problem, problematic here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more we get wrapped up in political point scoring, um, that erodes trust in government. It muddies the facts. So your average person can't figure out where we are in this thread. They don't care. Um, and so they're missing the, the big picture here, and it, it ultimately benefits our, our foreign competitors. To be clear, uh, Durham's investigation led to charges against three low-level figures, two of whom were acquitted by a jury. Uh, what did we learn of value here, Rachel? Six and a half million dollars. We must have learned something. Yeah, I like I said, it is always a good thing to be checking your procedures inside an agency to make sure that you're handling politically sensitive cases fairly. Um, you know, does that take four years? Does that take uh, that amount of money? Um, not sure it needs to. Yeah. But um, but there was no bombshell here. Um, but but in the actual report itself, the you know it, that that is not the same case. Whenever you look at how Trump is is uh, spinning it and taking this this report conclusion, well, there's also the question of how other lawmakers are taking this report. There was a statement out from the House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner that said such actions should never have occurred. It is essential that Congress codifies clear guardrails that prevent future FBI abuses and restores the public's trust in our law enforcement institutions. Do you think we'll see something legislative? come out of this episode? What do you think the likely response from Congress is? 
I think you'll see an effort. I think the kind of divided Congress makes the actual legislation uh, difficult, but I think they will. Um, there will probably be some movement on the House side to at least investigate. I will say the FBI's uh, came out with a statement that they, you know, I think it was back in 2019, uh, they implemented some changes to their yes. procedure, dozens of them, I believe, that would have um, caught most of the problems that are identified in the report. Um, so that's important information. I don't think that'll stop Congress uh, from trying to uh, look active on this topic. Uh, to what end? Uh, I'm not sure. Boy, so not the greatest scam against the American people, as Donald Trump said. Hmm. Not, not, no, I don't, I don't think so. Would not classify it as such. Speaking of things that Donald Trump has said, when we talk about you know how he kind of is touting this as a vindication, I wonder what this does to his ability to continue pushing other mistruths, like the idea that the 2020 election was stolen. What is your take on that, Rachel? Unfortunately, I I think it's just going to continue. Um, We've seen time and again that there are so um, many kind of different framings and falsehoods coming out that it's hard to keep track and it's hard to rebut. um, And it kind of undermines a shared truth. Um, We're seeing platform fragmentation that's kind of adding to who's getting what news and from whom um, in this kind of this this division and this um, lack of a shared understanding of the facts. Uh, It's really damaging to democracy and it plays right into the hands of our foreign adversaries. I mean, 2016, the Russian interference in 2016 is the, the gift that keeps on giving from the Russian perspective. The idea that we are still have a political fallout and we are still being divided. And this is still an issue uh, that causes so much strife here in the United States uh, is, is exactly what they want and is, is exactly what's intended. Um, and so, you know, I, that is from a geopolitical standpoint, um, the worse U.S. democracy looks, the better uh, for our competitors abroad. Uh, and that's they're playing that game. And we are we are fighting amongst ourselves. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Rachel Dean Wilson, Managing Director, Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Earlier today, uh, the Fed came up shockingly mm. in the senate banking committee hearing on the failures of svb and signature you were there uh, kaylee you don't need me to tell you but pretty remarkable to hear gregory becker who was the ceo very well compensated ceo yes. of svb basically blame the fed yeah well this is the idea that the fed hiked interest rates so quickly so high that it left kind of banks uh scrambling with with what to do in this higher interest rate environment when their assets and liabilities then just became greatly mismatched yep. listen to what he had to say about it Throughout 2020 and late 2021, the messaging from the Federal Reserve was that interest rates would remain low and that inflation, when that was starting to bubble up, would only be transitory. During this time, SVB invested in low-risk, highly rated government-backed securities. These securities were safe assets as they were backed by the U.S. government and could be used as collateral for borrowing for liquidity if SVB needed it. So uh, call Jay Powell. Yeah. To think that we're still blaming things on transitory at this point is really <laughs> remarkable. My God, what a gap. Yeah, we all know how uh, transitory is going to go down in the history books, Joe. But basically the idea <laughs> of saying that they couldn't, that the Fed didn't properly telegraph what it was going to do. The thing yeah, is, is right. that by the time this bank actually failed in March of 2023, we were a year into the hiking cycle right. in which rates had already gone much higher. And, and, and the that market is, had adjusted. Yeah. And that's something that the lawmakers were really pushing, not just Greg Becker, but the other executives from Signature Bank mm-hmm. there as well, as you should have seen this coming. As Senator Mark Warner described it, it was banking 101 and they just didn't do it right. Basically. You talked to a few skeptical lawmakers uh, mm-hmm. today from the, the Senate Banking Committee, D's and R's, yep. all skeptical, all united, at least in their skepticism. Yeah, including the chairman of this committee, Senator Sherrod Brown, the Democrat from Ohio. I asked him, you know, how do how does hearing from lawmakers bring us closer to a potential legislative uh, solution? What are you, you know, hoping to understand? And he basically said executives were incompetent mm-hmm. and greedy. Uh, they ran these banks into the ground. We want to learn more about what they did and how they did it. Uh, we want the message to go out loud and clear um, that that kind of behavior is is will not be tolerated. And we want other banks to know that they can't operate this way and be holding these bankers accountable. Greg Becker of, um, of Silicon Valley Bank, the two executives from Signature, and we will then pursue legislation to hold them further accountable. Would that include executive compensation clawbacks? Um, it will include a number of things. It will include uh, recovering the money that they made as they ran this bank into, um, into oblivion, essentially. It will mean they can't work at other banks and do the same thing. Um, we know that um, one of these executives sold millions of dollars of stock in his own bank not long before, when he saw these problems, not long before. He didn't fix the problems. He sold his own stock and made a killing, if you will, 
far beyond what executives should make, especially an executive that ran the bank into the ground. So I guess one thing they really can agree on is clawing back yes. uh, executive compensation. Everybody's on the same page there. Yeah, and Senator Elizabeth Warren was talking about a bill she'd like to see introduced and marked up in yeah. this committee uh, to do just that, hoping to get bipartisan support. And she told me she's working on that with her colleagues in the House as well. So that does seem to be like one area of potential consensus. Mm-hmm. In other areas, though, still very much a question mark. We perhaps will get more clarity around what we could see in regard to deposit insurance or could not see uh, in all likelihood on Thursday when there's going to be another hearing Mm -hmm. in the Senate Banking Committee with the regulators. How about your conversation with Kevin Kramer? You've got a Republican in this case, uh, North Dakota, similar views, or do they start to to break apart on some of these? In some ways, similar in that he also, you know, isn't letting management off the hook here. And he, too, expressed some support of the idea of executive compensation clawbacks. Here's this conversation. Management, you know, has some culpability in all of this, but so do the regulators. And I think if, you know, hearing from both sides will be helpful in determining um, what, what a solution may be if, it's, if there's one necessary at all. What about something like executive compensation clawbacks? Well, I like the idea of, of executive compensation clawbacks. Um, I'm not sure how broad the net ought to be thrown or how far back it ought to go. And those are some of the details of, 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 uh, of legislation, as you maybe know, that Senator Warren has. Uh, currently that I'm considering. Um, but, but certainly if something criminal has happened and, and if, if executives knowingly um, provided themselves and their management team with big bonuses or large raises or adjustments of some sort right before a known catastrophe, uh, that's a pretty big problem. And I, I think the challenge is how do you prove intent? How do you prove that um, something criminal happened and they shouldn't be able to skate under a standard of criminality um, when you're already being compensated a great deal to run, you know, to run the business. So, again, f- trying to find that balance is going to be important. And, of course, we're talking here about failures that already have happened. How right. concerned are you that there could be more to come? Well, I'm, I'm becoming more concerned. However, one of the problems with a lot of the failures is concern becomes contagious and contagious uh, in, in some really, really uh, detrimental ways because, I, frankly, I think that but for the runs on the banks, that most of them probably could have survived what was clearly an upside-down situation with their deposits based on um, interest rates, things that were beyond their control, although things that they certainly should have been able to see coming and probably didn't manage as well as they could have. But I don't know that that means that you need a a massive um, legislative or regulatory response so much as um, you know, better behavior by, by people in charge. But, but I don't want to be contributor to the contagion, if you will. And so I think how we, how we talk about it is important, and choosing our words carefully is also important. Isn't that funny? They know the markets are listening. Yes. I mean, you have to actually you've got to be careful here. I know everyone's blaming people and all, usually the Fed. Uh, but these hearings do more than give lawmakers a chance to grandstand. Mm-hmm. The markets are listening. Right. They want to know how concerned congressional leaders still are about the health of the banking system, because we are all still trying uh, to figure that out. And as we talk about the speed with which some of these failures happened, the idea that it was perpetuated by social media and so much of it felt psychological, it maybe logically follows that you're going to be very, very careful about yeah. what you say so as not to fuel a fire that could then right. start raging. I'm curious, Kaylee, uh, you were there at the first hearing. Uh, mm-hmm. As these continue and, and with you know not a lot of promise of, of a lot to come out of them, and we've got a debt ceiling and so many other things to focus on. Are the reporters starting to dwindle? Or, or is, you know, is Bloomberg covering this? Yeah. 
Does anyone else got? I've been lonely staking out you a have? few of yeah. these. There were other people there today, but it does feel like you know. People have other things they're focusing Senators, on. Senators, listen up. If you see Kaylee Lyons alone in the hall, <laughs> let's do an interview. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.